Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Andrew Burt. He is a returning guest to the podcast. Andrew is Chief Privacy Officer and Legal Engineer at Immuta, a company building data management tools tuned for data science. Recently, Andrew and cybersecurity pioneer Daniel Gear released a must-read white paper called Flatlight. This white paper provides a fantastic framework for how to think about information security in the age of big data and AI. They list important changes to the information landscape and more importantly, offer concrete suggestions on how to alleviate some of these new risks introduced by the rise of machine learning and AI. I also wanted to highlight the fact that Andrew is part of a team of instructors from Immuta who are teaching a brand new and important tutorial at Strata Data San Francisco this coming March called successfully deploy machine learning while managing its risks. So if you're a manager, decision maker, or even a technologist interested in using machine learning and AI within your organization, this is a tutorial you should consider attending. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Andrew Burt, Chief Privacy Officer and Legal Engineer at Immuta. Welcome back to The Data Show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back. Well, you in particular keep writing this great white paper. So I just am forced to have you back into the podcast. But anyway, I think in the previous podcast, uh, we talked about this briefly, but let's remind our listeners what you mean when you have a job title legal engineer. So that's a wonderful question. I've received it so many times. I, I literally put together a blog on the Amuda website called What is a Legal Engineer? And what it really means, uh, so I'll tell you what it means, and, uh, and then I'll tell you the thesis behind it. Um, so what it means in practice is it means the act of thinking about laws, compliance burden, regulations, primarily surrounding data. It's the act of thinking about all of that through the lens of, of technology. So in other words, how do we look at legal burdens, uh, the compliance burden on data? And rather than turning that, that analysis into a memo, you know, the question is, how can we help turn that into code? How can we turn it into logic and software? How can we turn it into features as product managers? That's really what it entails. We have a team of uh, legal engineers here at Amuta, all of whom are lawyers, all of whom spend their time in various ways, thinking really, really closely and deeply about the way that the legal burden on data is changing and, and how we can help make our platform in particular and, and, and really software as a whole more responsive to this, this changing legal environment. So that's that's what we do. And the thesis behind that is really just that law needs to change and that technology is really challenging laws in very interesting ways. And if we don't think about kind of scaling the way that we approach those changes, if we don't think about how we can actually efficiently really try to innovate in, in the legal and compliance space, um, we're going to end up you know, either with failures in compliance or failures in technology, or, or both, and, and we don't want either of those outcomes. So if our listeners went to a job search engine and type 
uh, legal engineer. Will they find other jobs? And uh, if they do, where would the jobs be? Would they be at law firms or at companies? As of yet, I think we're the first company to have a team of legal engineers, at least that I know of. Uh, the, the title has actually been kicked around for a while now. I think earliest reference I found was in a, a report by some lawyers at Stanford in the 1980s about how to adapt to a new technological environment. I think those, those authors were, I think, really ahead of the times. But this is not something that necessarily has to live within law firms. I think you know the home this team has here at Amuta, I think, makes a lot of sense um, because what we're primarily doing is, again, we're thinking about how laws are changing, how laws are affecting the use of regulated data, and what we can do as a platform to help accommodate and comply with those laws. So it's really you know one part analysis, another part product management and feature building. So the main reason I wanted you back to the podcast was because of this new white paper that you wrote with Dan Green called Flat Light, which I will link to in the show notes to this episode. But uh, what motivated you and Dan to write this white paper? Yeah, so working together with Dan was frankly a dream. I've been close with Dan for a few years and I've been reading his work for much longer. And so basically what happened is... Wait, Andrew, so since you said that, you should describe who Dan is. Yeah. So in my estimation, Dan Gere, I think, is one of the smartest, deepest thinkers, intellectuals in, in the field of information security. He's been doing this for decades. Uh, he has a, a, you know, a few extremely famous papers. I would say his first work that I read had to do with monocultures and the cost of monopolies in the cybersecurity environment about 15 years ago. But I really, I came into the world of information security working at the FBI cyber division. And, you know, then as now, the information security environment was one really characterized by disorientation. Um, it was just impossible to wrap my head around. I felt folks around me, it was impossible to fully understand exactly what was happening and why it was happening and why the environment seemed to be deteriorating every single day. And so within that environment, I found Dan's writings to be incredibly helpful. And so that was my first exposure to his work. Kind of subsequently, we became friendly. And about a year ago, um, we teamed up to write an op-ed for the New York Times called The End of Privacy. And it was a very short op-ed. And in it, we basically just said all of these foundational assumptions about what it means to be private, what it means to be let alone, which is frequently how privacy is defined, all of these fundamental assumptions are going away. And instead, we are confronting a world in which new conceptions of privacy kind of need to develop. And so we wrote this op-ed. It was great fun. Op-eds are quite short. And then it was published. Um, and in the weeks after publication, the two of us kind of said, there's so much we've left unaddressed. There's so many changes that we've identified in the cybersecurity and the privacy environment. We really have a lot more work to do here. And so I'd say over the last year or so, the two of us collaborated on this white paper quite closely. And I'm happy to kind of sketch the points we made in the white paper or to go kind of one by one. But but that's really the impetus for the white paper. And I, and I think it, it came from the sense of, I want to say on my end, a little bit of, of desperation, kind of looking around for some guideposts as to, you know, why is everything in information security and in privacy? Why does everything seemingly keep getting worse? And how can we help to put that into the context of all of these larger changes we're, we're watching and witnessing in the world of technology broadly and network technology uh, in particular? 
Yeah, and I definitely enjoyed reading it, and I recommend it highly. Uh, let's delve into a few of the things that you and Dan listed under shift in truths. So the first being, which I found interesting in retrospect, kind of obvious, but then no one talks about it this way, which is that privacy and security are converging. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and one thing just about the title of the white paper. So we called it Flatlight, and Flatlight is actually a word that comes from the world of aviation, and it signifies it's a little bit like whiteout conditions, but it signifies when pilots are completely disoriented in space. And that disorientation is based on a complete lack of reference. So without any reference points, it's impossible to know if you're going forward, backward, you know, down or up. And so what we say is that that situation, flatlight, really encapsulates the world of, of privacy and security today. Um, and so we do make this point that privacy and security are really converging. I think there are a lot of fun ways that this is true um, and scary ways that this is true in the world of big data and machine learning, which I'm happy to dive into more. But I think the broader point is basically the end goal of privacy and the end goal of security are now really totally, totally um, summed up by this idea of how do we control data in an environment where that control is harder and harder to do and in an environment that is harder and harder to understand. Yeah, and, and I guess you and Dan make the point that in many ways, both are concerned with misuse of data. And on the security side, it's uh, you don't want it to be a, from an adversary. And then the, on the privacy side, it might be actually someone you trust who ends up misusing your data. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, as we see machine learning take more and more prominence, I think what's going to be really fascinating is that traditionally, both privacy and security really related to different types of access. So, you know, one was adversarial access in the case of security. The other was, you know, is the party you're giving the data to accessing it in a way that kind of aligns with your expectations? That would be a traditional notion of privacy. I think as privacy and security converge, what we're going to start to see is that both fields are going to be more and more worried about unintended inferences. So it's not simply just going to be, you know, who can access this data and how can they access this data? But the concern is going to be, what can they infer from this data that I don't actually understand as possible? And so I think, you know, we are in this state of flat light. And the future that we're looking at is one in which some of these fundamental premises about, you know, what does it mean to actually worry about privacy? What does it mean to worry about security? I think these are starting to shift. And you, you, the two of you also make a couple of good points about how we think about security and cybersecurity in general. Namely, uh, first, that failures really can't be avoided. And then, the, which means that the, the goal of security then should be to drive the mean time to repair to zero. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so what we say is that the traditional approach, at least implicitly, kind of aspired to have a mean time between failures, uh, so you know the, the period between which failures occur, to be infinity. If you had a mean time between failures of infinity, it means you're not having any failures. And that was the aspirational goal, traditionally. And, and what we say is this new framework, if failures are um, a given, if we understand we can't avoid them, then what we need to be focused on is, is, as you say, mean time to repair is our ability to respond the resiliency of our networks and our infrastructure, and basically how quickly we can recover. And I think, you know, 
this is a point Dan's been talking about for a while. We spoke about it when I was last on the show in the context of managing risk and machine learning. The importance of failures is increasing as a result, and specifically the importance of silent failures. I think my biggest concern is more and more focused on failures that we can't detect. Because if we can't detect the failure, then we can't respond to it. If we can't respond to it, then this entire kind of framework we're suggesting falls apart. And so I think it's true, you know, everything from machine learning to simply, you know, just keeping networks up and running. But all of this, the direction that we're heading, all of that is really premised, I think, upon the ability to discover failures when they occur. Um, And in really complex systems, it's entirely possible to just know something is not working, but not actually understand where the failure is occurring and therefore, you know, not being able to respond to it. So, Andrew, in your mind, uh, this notion of failures cannot be avoided. I'm assuming that the uh, cybersecurity technologists understand this, but uh, what about the policymakers? I don't want to say that the talking about policymakers' reactions to this area is somewhat sad, but we are, from a policy perspective, I think we're nowhere near where we need to be. I think the, the reason we're here, the reason we're in a state of flat light, is because the pace of adoption of new technology is unlike anything we've ever seen, frankly, in human history. It still kind of boggles my mind to think about the fact that the iPhone is just over a decade since its introduction. And and yet think about, you know, all the the huge impact the iPhone and other um, touchscreen smart devices like it have, have had. And so this rapid rate of adoption I think has caught the world of policymakers by surprise. Um, and frankly, I think folks understand, you know, every day that goes by, I think that the, the importance of the problem becomes more and more clear. But I would characterize their world as well as one of flat light because they simply just don't know what to do or what to prioritize. And, you know, I think the good news is that the crisis is becoming clearer. I think the bad news is that I'm not sure what the appetite for actual action is. Um, before Muta, I was working in the government, and one of the phrases that I had heard from someone is, never before has so much thought gone into so little action than in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, and I think that sadly still still is true, but you know, given where all the trends are going and given the growing awareness of these problems, I think at least the appetite is increasing for policy, thoughtful, considerate, robust policy responses to, to some of the challenges we, we detail in the white paper. Yeah, I've been actually uh, reading articles and books about cybersecurity, and uh, it's fascinating because uh, on the government side, there's actually many efforts and many agencies that don't necessarily talk to each other. But anyway, so one of the things that you introduced in the white paper that at least I wasn't familiar with is this notion of the CIA triad. So what what is the CIA triad and how has it changed or how has the uh, elements of the triad changed over time? So that's a wonderful question. And, and I think that's frankly central to the shifts that we're seeing. So the CIA triad is really the traditional way that information security practitioners have framed really what it is that they're there to do. So C stands for confidentiality. The I stands for integrity. The A stands for availability. And so the idea was that you know, if information security is being practiced right, data that you're focused on will be confidential. Only the right people will be able to access it. Its integrity will be intact. You know, it will be preserved, uh, and it will be available when it's when, when you know when needed. So that's the CIA triad. And what we say in the white paper is that traditionally, you know, there are a lot of caveats, but traditionally, confidentiality 
has been kind of the first among equals within the triad. And so the emphasis has been first and foremost on preventing access by unauthorized users. And that actually closely mirrors the way that laws like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the major U.S. cybercrime law, and closely mirrors the way that that, that actually contemplates illegal you know, cyber criminal activities. And so what we basically say is, given the state of flat, like given the new world we're living in, where we create data abundantly and basically without full awareness of the volume or the variety of data that we just constantly create, this new world, confidentiality, uh, it can no longer be the major factor. I mean, and instead, especially when we have to admit that failures are just going to be a given, it's going to be impossible to fully prevent an authorized access from someone that you want to keep from accessing your data. If that becomes impossible in the scheme of things, then what the focus really needs to be about is on integrity, on preserving the integrity of the data, even after it's been accessed, even if that access is in fact unauthorized. And so that really involves, you know, if you're responding to a breach or in the world of machine learning, if you're trying to actually understand, you know, what data a model was trained on, it involves prioritizing and being able to understand, you know, that the integrity of the data is preserved, understanding the probabilities that the data remains accurate. There's, I mean, there's really a whole host of different facets of preserving integrity. But, but the major point we make is that in this new world where failure is a given, we can no longer focus on confidentiality like we used to. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, which uh, segues to your next item in your shift in truths, which is uh, tracking data provenance and the importance of that. And uh, it's something actually that I've been thinking about a lot lately, because uh, now that we're entering a world where uh, kind of software development uh, might increasingly start to look like uh, machine learning in the fact that you need uh, code and data. So data lineage and data provenance will be important, not for uh, auditing your application and for debugging and reproducing your results and things like that. And uh, we're actually starting to see people build data lineage systems. So talk to us about data provenance and why you think that's important in the world of security. Yeah, so I wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. I mean, one of the things that we say in the paper is that as we move to this world where models, machine learning increasingly kind of takes the place of, of, of logical, you know, instruction-oriented programming, we're going to have less and less source code and we're going to have more and more source data. And when, you know, as that shift occurs, what then becomes most important is understanding, you know, everything we can about where that data came from, who touched it, you know, if its integrity has in fact been preserved. Uh, and, and one of the things we actually talk about in the white paper is that when we think about integrity in this world of, of machine learning and models, it does us a disservice to think about a kind of a binary state, which is the traditional way. You know, either data is correct or it isn't. Either it's been tampered with or it hasn't been tampered with. And that was really the measure by which we judged you know, whether failures had occurred. But when we're thinking about not source code, we're thinking about source data for models, we need to be kind of moving into a little bit more of a probabilistic mode because when we're thinking about data, data in itself is never going to be fully accurate. It's only going to be, you know, some measure of degree of representative of whatever it's actually trying to represent. So we need to kind of shift into viewing this world with a little bit more nuance. Um, and we also 
make this point that as we talk about the increasing importance of integrity, what we also are really talking about is the increasing importance of provenance. And that itself is becoming a core part of integrity. So uh, actually, as you were talking, uh, you know, the thing that struck me was that so in the world of data, first of all, the uh, decision makers have to kind of change their mindset in uh, in the fact that in the world of data, maybe uh, data can help inform decisions, right? And so now uh, we're injecting another level of complexity, which is basically uh, the importance of thinking in terms of probabilities and uh, data provenance, data lineage, and things like this. So there's a lot of uh, education and training that will happen, not just for the technologists, but also for the managers and decision makers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I find that in, in talking about the subject, one of the quotes that helps the most is from the statistician George Box, which is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And, and that really seems to help folks who are unfamiliar with this world understand that what a model is doing in data science is it's approximating some type of correlation. And it can be very useful to us, but at, at its root, we need to understand that we're really talking about probabilities. When we talk about probabilities, we're removing this idea of certainty from the equation. And so I think it's, a, I mean, it's one part of this much larger shift that I think we're witnessing. You know, there, there are a lot of really, really good positive aspects to how quickly we've embraced and continue to embrace technology. Um, so in that sense, I, you know, I, I would paint myself in the optimist camp. On the other hand, though, it really has left us, I think, in this state of flat light. And I think the state holds for you know, data scientists. I think it holds for information security practitioners. I think it holds for lawyers, policymakers, really anyone who's trying to think intelligently about technology, I think, is, is really confronting this, this, this larger shift that we've been talking about today. Let's go through quickly a couple more of these. The next one will be uh, diversity without adaptability does not provide sufficient protection against attackers. Yes. So, um, so, so the basic idea is that before there was this notion that diversity itself was sufficient to hold off you know, common mode failures. And so basically, this comes from nature, where in nature, if everyone has the same genetics, you know, one single virus or you know, one single attack could lead to something like a, a, event, a species level extinction event. And so the idea was, if you have diversity amongst your systems, then the level of threat that any one particular malicious action can actually pose, that level is reduced. So given enough diversity, basically, something would survive. And what we say now, uh, so, so that was you know, an, an old reference point that has, has since kind of shifted or, or diminished. And, and now what we're saying is that diversity on its own is not enough. Just the, the, the sheer complexity of the systems and the networks that we're tasked to not only control, but, but to understand, that level of complexity is so high that it's less and less feasible to maintain that type of diversity. And so along with diversity, we need to be thinking about adaptability. And that, that really means change management. So how can we have a diverse system really respond and update over time. And so we, we make a few recommendations, which I, I know we'll get to later in, in this conversation. In the AI world, this be, is beginning to sound more and more like reinforcement learning. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's exactly, um, I mean, I think, I think that's exactly right. We need to be thinking of these systems as, you know, on the one hand, I think we need to kind of give in to, to this complexity. It's going to be too much for us to fully understand. And then as a result, we need to be thinking about kind of 
systemic ways that we can create order out of these systems. And so that's how I would I would take your your insight there. But 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 I think that's exactly right. And then finally, your last uh, shift is uh, your nexus is no longer based on the physical location of your facilities, but is based instead upon the location of your users. Yes. So the point there. So again, the, the, all, all of these points are like these these new reference points that are going to help to lead us out of this this current state of, of flat light, and and that reference point is, is directly related to the one we made just before, which is basically that when thinking about critical nodes in a network, what we need to be thinking about is usage. So we call usage the gateway drug to criticality. And so when you start to think of from that insight, when you start to think about nexus of a network, and when you start to think about how to protect it, and for folks familiar with information security and, and network architecture, when you start to think about things like the DMZ or the demilitarized zone, you know where where you want some things exposed to the outside world, the utility of that approach kind of decreases. And so our our major point there is that it's really where the users are based and what the users are doing that determines you know how critical the infrastructure or the, the network is or the activities are, um, and, and determines how important they are to you from a security and a privacy perspective. And so kind of trying to draw like a network topology and saying, you know, here are all the major nodes, this is what we need to protect, that becomes a lot less important given all of the other trends uh, that we describe in the paper. And then maybe, uh, so for example, you might have a data center in another country, but uh, millions and millions of users in uh, another country. And so what you're saying is that where the users are is just as important as where this data center might be located. Exactly, exactly. And we've, we've seen this, I mean, with the rise of cloud computing, we've seen this just really interesting shift. And um, I actually didn't know this before we started doing some research for the, for the white paper, but I, we're trying to kind of quantify how much of an effect cloud computing has actually had. And it turns out in the U.S. education market, something like the Chromebooks market penetration is something like 60%. Um, and it's almost entirely based off of you know, off-board compute. And so in that world, where almost all the compute power is not actually taking place on the local device, it makes a lot less sense to think about, you know, where where is the physical architecture? And it makes a lot more sense to start thinking about where are the users and, and, and what are their usage patterns. So the, the great thing about this white paper is it, it doesn't just list a set of challenges. It does uh, provide some suggestions for moving forward. So give us some highlights of some of these suggestions. Yeah, so so we make six specific suggestions. Um, I think for, for, I mean, some of them are controversial. I think for this audience, um, one of the first takeaways that I would highlight is really the importance of use-based restrictions on data. Um, and so the basic idea is that rather than thinking about governing data and managing data by just saying, you know, can you see it or can you not see it? We need to start thinking about, can you use it under this purpose or can you not use it under this purpose? When you're at a certain level, once you, you're constantly generating data whose value you can't understand, which we're doing you know, right now, our cell phones are pinging towers that are uh, you know, the aggregate results of all of that say very intimate things about us. What we really want to do, the way we can protect our, our privacy and our security is by limiting what all that data can be used for. And so we make this recommendation that purpose-based restrictions on data really need to be central to any future efforts to govern our data. And it turns out, you know, the GDPR, um, which came out uh, earlier this year, 
is this behemoth data regulation has you know many things that are good about it, many that are, are, are in truth bad about it, but I think it does get this right. Uh, you know, a core principle of GDPR is is that restricting data based on use needs to be central to how to govern data. Your uh, recommendation number three is, seems controversial. Embrace yes. digital identification. Yes. So, so that was one that, quite frankly, to me, as we were writing it, it seemed both true and, and hard to stomach. You know, from a privacy and civil liberties perspective, it's hard to think about the importance of formalizing physical identities in cyberspace. But the more we thought about it, frankly, the more we realized, the more I realized that identities have really already been formalized in cyberspace. If you're a bad actor and you want to understand who I am based on you know, enough of my data, it's not hard for you to do. The ability to maintain your anonymity is decreasing every single day. Um, and we see it, you know, part of, to me, what's so upsetting about these, these huge, massive data breaches, um, you know, Marriott, of, uh, some, something around 500 million customers, and you know, Yahoo earlier in the billions, it just, it, there's this constant stream of these breaches that are really kind of beyond our ability to comprehend. The thing that I think is so upsetting is, is the biggest impact is it's just harder and harder to stay anonymous when you have this volume of data that's just kind of floating out there about you. Um, and so given that, given how hard it is to retain your anonymity, at least from organizations you want to keep it from, you know, criminal organizations, anyone who might want to actually understand who you are and single you out online or advertising organizations, whatever it is, given that it seems both inevitable and a shame that we've made it so hard to formalize our identification for services that we could all actually collectively benefit from. And so this goes for things like government services, really anything that we collectively might want to kind of pool our resources. Is this a specific recommendation tuned? I mean, is this country-specific, right? So, because for example, if you live in an authoritarian regime, how does this work if, you're, if you have formal digital IDs? Yeah, so we're very careful about the way that, that we, we make this recommendation. So we say embrace digital identification. One of the reasons we say embrace it is because... It's happening. Exactly. It's happening and we need to shape it. And frankly, we need to be thinking very, very, very clearly about how to prevent all the abuses um, that could happen. And so we, don't, we, we actually refrain from specifically saying, here is exactly how to do it. And the major point is just, this is happening. If we don't embrace it, if we don't think thoughtfully about how to do this the right way, the wrong people and the wrong approaches are going to end up taking precedence. Um, and so one idea that I like, we, we didn't talk about this in the paper, is a, a system of federated IDs where it, it, it's actually a way to um, verify your identification without either the organization that's trying to do the verification um, having direct access to that data. Interesting, because uh, over the last week, I don't know, uh, I've been reading a bunch of essays on the Lawfare blog. I guess they had a series around, there was a... Uh, conference in Santa Barbara, and uh, there was a whole series of talks around extraordinary access. Have you heard of that term? I've never heard of that term for law enforcement and encryption. Yes. And so one of one of the things that uh, they were lo- uh, they were talking about is this notion of federa- federation as well. I should also mention Lawfare kind of co-published this white paper with Stanford's Hoover Institution. So awesome. it's available on Lawfare as well as on the Hoover Institution site. Um, but I mean, there are a variety of approaches to this. And, and our point is not that anyone is right. Um, our point is just that even for people who cringe at this idea of digital identification, you know, even for that you know, large group of people, 
they really need to start thinking about what it looks like to just resist it entirely rather than embracing it and trying to shape it so that its abuses can be prevented. So let's rattle off the last three quickly. And if you can touch on them briefly, retain the analog, mandate sustainability. And for this audience in particular, they might like this last one. More data is better. More data is better. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll end with that one. Um, so, um, I mean, retain the analog is one that I actually think there's this real moral imperative. Right now, you know, for all functional purposes, no one is really given a choice when it comes to conducting their lives online. But the choice is, in reality, either kind of go live in the 15th century or do everything online create a huge amount of digital exhaust, have a huge amount of connectivity, generate data that you can't control and whose insights you don't really understand. Um, and so when we say retain the analog, on the one hand, we mean preserve some sort of choice. So there have been some really kind of tragic highlights of, of this choice in the aftermath of natural disasters like Hurricane Michael or Hurricane Maria, where people just don't have cash anymore and the systems were down. Um, and the basic ability to actually just make a purchase, like economies stop functioning, local economies in these areas, because cash was depressed. And so we need to be thinking about, really, I think, the, the long-term consequences of our actions. We embrace digital technologies too quickly. We are functionally abandoning an entire infrastructure, an entire other way of conducting our activities. We need redundancy and a backup. Exactly. And, and in order to have that, you need a, you know, a body of users um, and uh, usage. It can't simply be left to gather dust on a shelf. And so there's, I think there's kind of a moral imperative that in order to preserve our freedom, there needs to be a choice. You know, you need to be able to actually refrain from generating potentially sensitive data if you choose to do so. And then also from a national security perspective, we need redundancy, we need backups, we need ways to conduct our activities without relying on digital technology. Especially now that you have state actors and critical infrastructure being vulnerable to state actors. Exactly. And just think about elections. You know, there's not one election security expert who doesn't highly recommend having paper-based backups. There's a reason for that. It's not because digital technology is bad. It's because the importance of retaining analog alternatives is really critical. And so we're, we're basically making the point that we need to be thinking about analog alternatives really, really seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, I don't I don't think it's too late to preserve some of that. But, you know, it's not hard to imagine a future in which we really, we, you know, we really get rid of cash. And going back to a cash-based system is just not something that's feasible. Same thing with voting. It's actually also at the enterprise level, because uh, as I recall, remember the North Korea attack on Sony. Yeah. So I was, uh, I mean... I was involved in that um, uh, while I was in the government, so I, it's not something I can I, I can talk about in, in specifics. But organizations everywhere, I think, are over reliant on digital technologies in ways that they they don't fully uh, appreciate. So it takes an event like that. I think that was a real wake up call where you know organizations from the actual you know organization that was a victim to pretty much every other you know large company on on the face of the earth suddenly understood this is how vulnerable I am started to kind of reassess those, those vulnerabilities. So l let's jump to the last one. More data is better. Yes, more data is better. So that's become almost kind of like a, a trite in the sense that, you know, anyone with a technical background says more data is better because more data leads to more insights. Um, and so, you know, we need, we need to be a little bit wary of that, that statement because it's not always true. But 
in this particular circumstance, I think it's deeply true. So we find ourselves in this state of flat light. We don't understand you know, our environment. We can't control our environment. We don't even understand what it is we're reacting to. it. So when we say more data is better, what we're really saying is that in order to make informed decisions, we need more data. We need data in real time to base these decisions off of. And so this old notion of really having a lot of time to be able to, to, to plan out and think about and map our cybersecurity environment, that's going away. Um, and it's going to go away quicker and quicker as we you know, embrace new technologies faster and faster. And so data, I think, needs to be the backbone of any you know, long-term attempt to address some of these problems. And, and one of the specific recommendations that we make is that within this context, privacy-enhancing technologies I think are going to have a key role to play because they're going to enable you know, security and privacy-preserving ways of sharing data while also keeping some of the utility. Yeah, this is a super exciting area. And in fact, in 2019, uh, we're going to emphasize uh, security a lot more at the Strata Data Conference for precisely this reason, the, uh, the role of data and security, but also uh, just the importance of data and data security and data privacy. So I wanted to close this uh, episode by highlighting the fact that Andrew and his colleagues at Immuta, I somehow convinced them to t- uh, teach a tutorial at Strata San Francisco, the Moscone Center on March 26. The title of the tutorial is Manage the Risks of Machine Learning in Practice. So at a high level, what are you folks planning to cover in this tutorial? Yeah, so you didn't have to do too much convincing. We're excited to do it. Basically, what we're going to do is, you know, as machine learning is embraced more and more, you know, the risks are, are, are becoming larger um, and, and the risks of, of failure are becoming more severe. And so the goal is we're going to take a handful of experts here at Amuta from the data side, from the engineering side, the legal engineering side, and we're going to walk participants through really what it means to actually create, train, and deploy machine learning models within an organization, and all of the risks that are associated with that activity, and then how to really understand that and manage all of those risks. So we're going to split folks up into different teams, and we're going to really, really try to make sure that they leave the tutorial with a full grasp on what these risks are and how to manage them so that they can go back to their organizations and then embrace machine learning while also understanding um, and reducing the risks it creates. So this should be a great tutorial. And so as Andrew noted, the main thing to remember about this tutorial is you will have some uh, concrete takeaways from the Inuda team, uh, which will allow you to better get a handle for machine learning inside your organizations. And given that uh, machine learning is growing in importance, this is definitely a tutorial you should consider attending. And so Andrew, this has been a great episode. And uh, Thank you for coming back so soon to The Data Show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all the listeners. Thanks for joining us. And uh, as a reminder, Andrew Burt is going to be part of a crew from Immuta. They are teaching a brand new important tutorial at Strata Data San Francisco this coming March called Successfully Deploy Machine Learning While Managing Its Risks. You can follow Andrew Burt on Twitter at and Bert. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.